Welcome along to another D Word podcast. Now I'm delighted on this edition to welcome a fellow UK Health Radio presenter. As my guest is Sander Keg, who is co-presenter of the Umbrella Hour here on the station. Now, everyone's experience of being a dementia carer is unique, and that is certainly a case for Zander, who as a trans man had to face some very difficult challenges when his father was diagnosed with dementia. Well, Zander, it's uh, great to have you on the uh, D Word. Not so, yeah, it's great to talk to another UK Health Radio presenter as well, because I don't uh, don't get the opportunity to do that uh, very often. Um, Going to be talking about a lot of things. Um, I want to start with your father, if I can, who's uh, had a diagnosis of uh, dementia. And um, let's go, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, when did you notice that that things weren't quite right? Well, the the initial, you know, event that happened was <clears throat> I went to brunch with my father one day and I said, hey, dad, how was your week? And he said, much better than last week. And now this was an unusual thing for my father to say. So I thought, hmm, I'm going to I'm going to dig a little deeper in a very casual way. And I said, what made this week better than last week? And he said, well, this week I didn't have to deal with all those gift cards. And I immediately, my heart, like, I could, it was starting to beat, I, I was starting to beat quickly and I got this lump in my throat and I was like, oh no. So I just calmed myself down and I said, uh, what gift cards? And then he pulled out his phone and showed me uh, screen, uh, text messages of screenshots over and over and over of the front and back of gift cards from like department stores and gas stations and things. And I said, Oh, who were you sending that to? And he said, a friend of mine on Facebook. So right then and there, I knew <clears throat> my father had been caught up in a scam and all said and done. It was $18,000 that he had, purchased worth of gift cards and sent off to this person who wasn't his friend on Facebook, but somebody who had taken control of the Facebook page of somebody he had known for like 30 years. Um, and so I said, dad, I, I, I think maybe you've been scammed. And so I started to help him figuring out how to deal with notifying the various entities, the bank, you know, the credit card, the department stores, all these, you know, the sheriff's office. And that was my first clue that something was not right with my dad because my father was uh, a brilliant man. He was not easily duped by things like that. And so that that let me know something's not right, but I didn't know exactly what it was. I am a licensed clinical social worker here in the United States, but I've never worked in geriatric social work. I wasn't trained in dementia. I hadn't encountered it before. Nobody in my family has had dementia or Alzheimer's or anything like it. And so I at that time, my wife and I were talking about relocating from California to Florida, where we where we've been living for five years. And I said, I can't go unless my father comes with us because I can't leave my dad behind now knowing what I know. And so it took uh, it took about another year for my father to 
uh, be convinced that moving to Florida with us was a good thing to do. And that was my second indicator that he was not okay. He was not, he was different. Um, and that's because my father had always refused to leave, you know, the Southern California, <laughs> you know, area. And so, and coming to Florida was like the last thing he would ever want to do um, just because of, you know, the weather mostly. But um, so when he said, yeah, sure, I'll come with you. I thought, oh, okay, that's sign number two. And then, we, Margaret and I, my wife, we came out to Florida. My father was a week behind us. He came out. And within two days, I noticed m major things happening. My father was a, a computer engineer, right? Aerospace engineer and then computer engineer. And we had to get on a computer in the business center in our apartment complex to print out documents to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles to get new identification cards and driver's licenses. And I noticed that I was completely finished with my part of the task. My wife was finished with her part. My father hadn't even started it. He couldn't figure out how to use the mouse. And I was like, oh, that's, well, that's odd. Like how to double click on things because he was, he was used to being able to just open up his laptop and everything just turned on. But we didn't have internet in the house yet. So he was having to use a computer that was not his in a, in a computer, you know, in a business center. And that's when I realized I need to take my father in to the uh, VA hospital or the VA clinic, Department of Veterans Affairs. My father served in the Marine Corps. I took him to the VA clinic where we were living in Jacksonville and they did the mini mental you know, examination on him. And he couldn't, he didn't know what year it was. He couldn't tell time on the clock. Um, and so that's when he was diagnosed, sort of with a preliminary diagnosis of dementia. They weren't sure what type. It turns out it was, it's vascular dementia. Um, so that, that really was, and this was, um, this was in February of 2019 when he was given the diagnosis of dementia. The station that makes you feel good. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. My guest on this week's D-Word podcast is Xander Kegg, and we're talking about his father's dementia diagnosis. And, uh, you know, following on from that diagnosis, uh, one of the things we come across and have come across a lot on the show is uh, post-diagnostic support, which uh, is so variable um, here in the UK, depending on where you live, and also uh, talking to people in the States, exactly the same story. I mean, you know, what kind of support did you get when you, you've got this diagnosis, you've got, Dad, unfortunately, it's got vascular dementia. What do we do now? So in, in February, he was, you know, still upwardly mobile and, <clears throat> excuse me, able to, you know, do the basic things. He was able to, you know, all the activities of daily living, right? He could get himself dressed and showered and, and groomed and he could do his own laundry and he could prepare simple foods in the kitchen. 
Um, and so my wife and I were going off to work every day and my father was at home. And then we lived in this big apartment complex and we specifically moved into this complex because it had a fitness center in it. It had a common area. It had a concierge desk. And I wanted my father to be able to um, not become isolated, have opportunity to socialize. And my father was a, a gym rat. He was in the gym every single day, seven, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and he was also a runner and, a, and an avid walker. And so he would be in the gym every day. He would be interacting with people. Um, and so, and we were off at work all day long and he would go off every day at lunch to a local restaurant that was like a block away. No reason for concern. Um, and then, and then Margaret and I, we would sometimes go away for a Saturday or both a Saturday and Sunday and thought, you know, he's OK. He's doing OK. And then one day we got back from a weekend trip. We got back on a Sunday afternoon and I noticed my father's legs below the knee were swollen. And I asked him to take his shoes and socks off and I noticed that his toenails had not been trimmed in a very long time. He was shaving and he was trimming his fingernails, but not his toenails. And so that's when I was like, okay, some, something else is starting to happen now. And since he's a veteran and he, and he was going to the VA clinic, he was enrolled in the geriatric clinic, you know, component of this big clinic. And so there was a social worker on the team. So I called the social worker to say, listen, you know, I think my father needs some additional services. And what they did, and this was around um, September of 2019, so a few months had gone by, and what they did is they sent the team's occupational therapist out to the house, and that person spent a few hours with my father asking him to do things around the house and then noticing what he could do in, uh, independently, what he needed assistance with, um, and what had to be done for him. And at that point... You know, she sat me down and said, your father can no longer be alone in the house while you're at work. Um, we're going to approve him for adult daycare services. And so the Department of Veterans Affairs paid 100 percent for my father to go to an adult daycare program. They gave me a sheet that had about 12 different programs. I visited four or five of them. I took my father with me. We selected one. And then I also took my father to the um, the, the uh, bus company, you know, the local bus company, and got him enrolled in a program where he could ride the bus for free. Um, and then a little, the short bus, the smaller bus, would come to the home, pick him up and take him to the adult daycare program and then bring him back. I had to make I mean, I had to schedule that every week. There was no there could be no reoccurring. So I had to, you know, so it was starting to manage medications, manage transportation on my own. But he had the adult daycare and I had a lot of information from the occupational therapist about um, how to work with him when he was at home in the evenings and on the weekends. And so that went um, without any problems from September of 2019 until March of 2020, when COVID hit and the lockdowns hit, and then all the services came to a screeching halt. His adult daycare program shut down, the bus system shut down, the VA clinic shut down, and then we were without any services, without any support. The one caveat is that the adult daycare program where my father was attending was also a private uh like long-term care house 
It was owned by a husband and wife. The, the wife was a nurse and the husband was a physical therapist. And they had six bedrooms in this house where the adult daycare program was also run. And they had one empty room. And they asked me if I would like my father to stay with them for the two weeks, right? Flatten the curve. And they said that the VA money for adult daycare services would be applied to like the first 12 hours of the day. And then I'd only have to pay for the extra half of the day. And so I said, absolutely, yes. And so my father moved in for two weeks. Two weeks became uh, six weeks. Six weeks became, you know, 12 weeks. And then we could no longer afford it because the adult daycare program wasn't willing to pay for half of the day anymore. And so I had to find another uh, place for my father to go at that point. But that that one place that had the six bedrooms and the in-house staff that lived there, it was a wonderful, um, you know, sort of fill the gap opportunity for my father because the it was all men living there and the physical therapist had them like working out and going on walks. So it was ideal for for my father. It, it became a very different story once he moved to the next you know, level of care. Yeah, sure. You know, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because uh, I think you get settled in in one regime, if I can call it that, and then suddenly your whole world changes because uh, the the journey with dementia takes a new dimension. Uh, and as you were just mentioning there, you know, then you're you're cast into another world where you're on another really big learning curve. Yes, and you know, I wasn't allowed to visit him in the home. But, at, you know, as the medical proxy and durable power of attorney, I had I had more rights to visit him than just a standard visitor. Um, but I couldn't go into the house. So what the what the uh, physical therapist staff member would do is he would take my dad out for a walk and I could join them. Right. So I could visit with my father while he was taking a walk. And that was that was, you know, lovely. I, I didn't mind that at all. But when he moved to the uh, a different location he moved into what was called an independent plus wing of an assisted living facility so he had his own little bedroom without a kitchen um he had services available to him a la carte you know like he could still do his own laundry so we didn't pay for laundry services he could still um administer his own medication so we didn't pay for that but there were certain things that um uh, that also came with the room and board, so to speak, like the three meals a day. But they shut the dining room down. So they were delivering meals to bedrooms. Um, they shut down all the common areas. So people were having to stay like in their rooms or just in their wing. There were maybe like 12 independent rooms in this one wing and they had near the laundry room they had like a couch and some chairs and a television where people could congregate but people stopped congregating so my father ended up being very isolated and i didn't give him a television because i didn't want him to sit in his room all day long watching it i thought go out into the common area in your building and watch the tv but one of his neighbors gave him a television and they have cable was included in the in the room and board. So he sat day after day after day and I couldn't go visit him. They were much stricter there. Um, and he didn't, you know, a lot of people were doing things like visiting through windows and sliding glass doors. Um, they really frowned on that in Florida where we were where we we're living. They were very protective of people that were living in 
you know, older adult home settings, whether it was independent or assisted or skilled nursing, board and care, they were very protective. They didn't want, you know, and they didn't want COVID to be brought in. And luckily they didn't have a, they didn't have very many COVID cases in the, in the facility where my father was. But anyway, because of that isolation and because of the sitting all the time, that's when my father started to lose his mobility. And he also started to engage in behaviors that were more odd, like he was picked up by the police jogging in his underwear at like one or two in the morning. My father ran a hundred marathons, a hundred half marathons and 110 Ks between his like thirties and seventies. So he was an avid runner. And so in his mind, it was time to get up and go for a run, but he forgot to put his clothes on, <laughs> you know, to do it. Um, he also started falling and his blood pressure also, or his heart rate, I mean, started to drop really low. It's already very low, but it started to drop into like the 30s. So over the course of three months, he made three emergency department visits due to his heart rate being too low or falling. And that was it. He ended up being in a walker and having just you know having to have more all of a sudden now we needed laundry services and medication management services um a lot more services um being provided to him and eventually there were so many services being provided it made more sense to move him into the assisted living facility you know into those into those units and and that's what we ended up doing and so um, and they had their own little dining area that they could actually, it wasn't the big main one. So that, that was, that, that's where he ended up going and staying for a, about a year and a half until I was able to get him here. That was in Jacksonville, bring him here to Orlando to the Florida state veterans nursing home. That's brand new. My father was actually the first resident. He was alone there, um, as like a beta patient, <laughs> beta resident for about two months. Yeah, he's been there about maybe he's been there since July of 2022, so a little over a year now. Yeah, you, almost. Yeah, and some stories, Andrew. Most people faced with what you were faced with would probably think, okay, now I've got to kind of reorganize things back to, to where I was. But you actually then went out and, and starting a, a caregiving center, didn't you? I mean, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, for, for the listeners um, and, and the people viewing, they're seeing me now, right? I've, I've got this big beard and, you know, a bald head and a deep voice. I'm actually a trans man. So I started out my life um, a, as a girl and a young woman. You know, I, I'm, I'm still female sexed, but I live in the world socially as a man. And so I started thinking about when my father's memory starts to fade and as an only child, is there going to come a time where my father starts saying, where's my daughter? Why isn't my daughter coming to visit? And I thought, how am I going to handle that? Like, do I, do I tell the, the nursing home staff? Do I, you know, who do I talk to about this? So I spoke to some specialists, some people who are like caregiving experts and coaches, and I got some really sound, you know, advice um, and guidance in that area. But one of the other things I did is I reached out to the larger trans community um, here in the States and, and even globally posing the question, like, what did you do when you had a family member who developed dementia and forgot who you were, <laughs> you know, in your in your current you know, presentation and is wondering where the other you is, so to speak. And it was crickets, Pete. Nobody responded. I didn't hear one 
person with one story. And I thought, now this isn't right. I know I'm not the only one dealing with this. Why are people talking about it? And I was talking to another social worker who's also the caregiver for her father. They're both veterans. We were both uh, VA social workers, a Department of Veterans Affairs social workers in the past, even though we didn't work together. And we just started a conversation about like, why isn't anybody talking about this? There need, why, why isn't there any information? And so she said, well, why don't we start a center? Now, the center is virtual, right? It's not a physical location. It's called the LGBTQ Caregiver Center. It's on the internet, lgbtqcaregivers.org. And so people can go there and learn about uh, resources that are available, research that's being done specifically into the LGBT caregiver of people with dementia and Alzheimer's because there are studies going on. And so the co-founder and I, Jennifer and I, are now sitting on advisory boards for a couple of these studies that are going on all across the United States. They're multi-year and they're multi-institution um, supported by our um, National Institute on Aging, which is part of our Health and Human Services um, Administration. And so we're we're being able to gain information, give information, and then share that information out. Jennifer runs uh, Yoga for Caregivers, which is another project that she has. And so we make that available to uh, the member, not members, but the people who come to the LGBTQ Caregiver Center website, where they can go and take some, a quick break, breathing break, stretching break, you know, do some yoga, because we know as caregivers, being able to carve out enough time to like get in the car, go somewhere for an hour for a, cl a class in breathing or yoga or stretching or, or movement is not readily available. So these are all virtual. They're shorter duration, um, you know, because not everybody has access to things like other family members who can step in, respite care services that can that can step in. So so we wanted to be able to provide that. And now as a result, now I'm being invited to, you know, to talk to, you know, organizations and schools and programs and AARP and Alzheimer's Association uh, about being the caregiver as a trans man being a caregiver for a father who has dementia. So it's actually gotten the word out. Now I've heard from people who have had similar experiences, but you know what? Very few. And that's still surprising. It's still surprising to me that uh, this isn't, and maybe it has something to do with the fact that the way I'm handling it um, which might be more controversial or might be less encouraged um, or less accessible to other trans people, which is I am perfectly happy engaging my father in conversation about his daughter. I don't have I don't have any emotional reaction to that that's negative. It doesn't anger me. It doesn't sadden me. It doesn't frustrate me. It seems to be the most loving thing that I can do for a parent who raised me as a single father, um, you know, to give back to him what he gave to me. So it doesn't upset me at all. I know who I am. I don't need that external, you know, validation from anybody. I'm secure in my own sense of self so I can have that conversation with him. And I, I think that might be an issue for other people is they're not very stable and secure in their sense of self. And so if they have a parent or another loved one, a grandparent, a sibling who is not referring to them in ways they want to be referred, they might take it very, you know, hard. It might be very difficult for them. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good.
station that makes you feel good. My guest this week is Sander Kegg, and we're talking about his experience as being the sole carer for his father who is living with dementia. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two things involved in that, isn't there? There's what you've just said, and also the whole stigma surrounding, you know, the D word and dementia, um, which, you know, almost presents you with a bit of a double whammy there, doesn't you, in terms of, of people's thoughts and people's beliefs, etc., um, which must make things in very, very difficult. I mean, didn't he um, just kind of branch you off a little bit in the latest World Alzheimer's report? Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a really good article there about the uh, LGBTQ community and, and dementia risk. Um, and it's, it's not only obviously carers, it's people that will live with dementia as well. Yeah, I, I had heard, um, about that, not through reading that, but I, through the studies that I'm, I'm involved in being on the advisor board for, that there does seem to be uh, a higher rate of members of the LGBT community coming down with, you know, or I don't know what the proper language is, but, um, you know, developing perhaps dementia. Um, it'll be interesting to to find out if they're able to figure out like why that is, you know, um, I would imagine it's, you know, the stress and strain on the mental, on the mental, you know, on the brain, so to speak, with minority stress might be considered the, um, the higher rate of self-medication within the LGBT community as far as, um, you know, soothing with alcohol or, or other, you know, you know, substances to, to feel, you know, I don't know, feel better or not. So, um, not have life be so disrupted, right. It's, it's, it's not, it's not unusual for that to be true that there's a higher rate of, of uh, substance use disorder and addiction in the community as a, as a result, right. People will say as a result of the minority stress that they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. it will be interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting area. And um, as you did with the, with the caring thing, he's uh, one that someone has now opened the door on, which is good, which means people will, will start to look. But I've read a few things. And to be honest, some of the stuff's kind of alarmed me a little bit. And there was one sentence that really did alarm me in something that I've read that said, we want a location based directory of LGBTQ plus friendly doctors. And I read that and thought, well, that's nice, but shouldn't all the doctors be be like that? Uh, and we would be a much more tolerant society. Well, you know, it's true. There's a difference between, say, LGBT-friendly doctors, LGBT-culturally competent doctors, and LGBT, you know, like medically familiar Right. So it's it's one thing to be like, yeah, I'll see anybody. It's another thing to be like, oh, I've taken cultural competency webinars. I've been to conferences. It's another thing to know how to direct the health care of LGBT people. So it's it's uh, it's a more involved. There is here in the States, at least there is a um, an organization called OutCare, um, out and then C-A-R-E. Um, and they have 
like that, a directory of doctors who are involved. They also have a mentorship program for for medical students and and those who are like in residency, young young physicians and other kinds of medical providers to connect with people who are you know longer in those professions. So I'd say outcare might it might be a good um, idea for for organizations to start. Um, partnering with OutCare. There's another one called um, Included Health. Included Health is really interesting. They've only been around a couple of years. They're a concierge service. And so, and they, they, they provide their services as like an employee benefit. So here, excuse me, here in the States, you know, you buy health insurance for your employees um, and you can also add additional benefits to supplement those plans. And so included health is one of those. And what, what happens is if you work for an employer that has included health as an employee benefit, you call them up and say, I'm an LGBT person or my child is LGBT, you know, and we're looking for a therapist. We're looking for a doctor. We're looking for a social worker. We're looking for something, a clinic. And they, as a concierge service, they go and find it for you get all the information and then give you that information. So it's, it's a, it's a wonderful service. So without care, that's more like a directory included health and included health might even be using out cares directory and, you know, but not exclusively because not every doctor who's, who's going to have this medical competency with the community is going to be listed. So we we're starting to get some of these services and organizations and programs developed uh, there's another one called Home Thrive, and Home Thrive is uh, another employee benefit company that focuses on caregiving. So if your employer has that as a benefit for you, you call them and say, I'm the caregiver for somebody, a child, a sibling, a parent, a grandparent, a, a neighbor, right? And they will help you find all of the resources and services that you need in your local area. So it's it, it's becoming more and more possible to get the services and the assistance that that's needed as a caregiver. I think there are a lot of parallels between um, what you've just been talking about and dementia as a subject, because probably if we went back 20 years, um, we would be talking, as you've just talked, about the lack of dementia services, the lack of understanding, etc. So, yeah, there's a lot of parallels between those subjects. Yeah. And then you have the intersection, right? The the overlapping of the, you know, LGBT, you know, lack of knowledge or competency, because let's be honest, medical school is um, a long, four, it's a four year grueling process. They can't cover everything. So people really need to do uh, learn more about these, you know, various population topics once they're out of school. Um, very few schools have curriculum that's going to be covering um, those issues. And I would imagine dementia is similar, right? That it's, it's something that they're going to learn maybe in residency or fellowship versus, you know, the details of it while they're in medical school. Yeah, I think I, I think I did say it's a half a day, I think, here in the UK um, that they spend in in medical school on dementia, which, uh, you know, <laughs> doesn't even scratch the surface, does it? But uh, I think, uh, you know, I think what it takes is um, it takes knowledge, doesn't it? And knowledge then removes those barriers and those boundaries. And when we learn more about things, and I think, you know, I want to congratulate you for being so open that that everybody will think, Okay, 
um, and start to accept things. And I think that's, you know, that is the real key, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's good to get the information out there, you know, um, here in the States, you know, across the pond with you, you know, in Britain and all the other um, places that we have, you know, listeners for the UK Health Radio Network shows. Um, I've been really impressed with the, the breadth of, of topics, you know, that, that, uh, that come up on our network. Um, with myself, I'm, I'm the co-host of the Umbrella Hour with Dr. O- um, on Goldbauer. So for people who'd like to listen to some, you know, stories from trans people who are living their lives and working in different occupations and, and, uh, you know, some of them are medical. So, you know, people might be interested to hear about our lives told from our point of view. Yeah, I'd, you know, I've listened and I would, uh, you know, certainly say for, uh, for our listeners, do, because it's, it's a real education. And, uh, and I think that, as I, you know, as I was saying, is great. Well, well, Zandra, it's been brilliant to, uh, to have you on the, uh, on the show. And, uh, I sort of, uh, hopefully your dad will continue to, uh, you know, in, enjoy some of his life in the, the home he is now in, uh, in Orlando. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a developing subject. So maybe, you know, a little bit in the future, we can uh, touch base again on that. Absolutely. I look forward to that, Pete. Thanks to Zander. A real pleasure to chat to him. And you can catch him every week on the Umbrella Hour on UK Health Radio. Well, that's it for another podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it and you'll join me again soon for some more Dementia Talk.